Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's installment of The Good News According to Job. Uh, it's with great excitement that we get to move into this uh, this chapter because it marks quite a significant point in how far we've come uh, through the book of Job. Uh, so before I jump into the section, which we will be looking at is uh, Job 25, which is Bildad's response. I just want to reflect back on uh, what we have done uh, and where we are situ- situated in the book of Job. Uh, if you recall, we've been uh, introduced uh, in the beginning. We've had the introduction, chapter 1 and 2, and we introduced to Job and the dynamic of what's happening in his life. Uh, and then we had chapter 3, which was really the, the initial lament of the circumstance that Job found himself in. And since chapter 4, we've been introduced to the three friends that have supposedly come to comfort Job, to give him counsel, to to share their wisdom with him. And uh, we've been introduced to them. That was Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we see that they have spoken in about three cycles. Uh, And so we are currently in that third cycle that we've been looking at. We've had Eliphaz uh, already speak three times. We've had Bildad speak two times and Zophar twice. And now we are turning to Bildad and his third speech. Uh, But what is important for us to just pick up is that this marks actually the end of a of the third cycle from the friends perspective so we are coming to the end of the friends discourses uh, and we what is interesting is obviously that Bildad ends it off uh, and not so far so it's a semi incomplete discourse in some ways um, but there's some significance in, in what we see and what Bildad has to say um, and there could be some arguments as to why Zophar doesn't respond. Uh, but what we have here is actually the end of the third cycle or the approach to the end of the third cycle. And then as we shift on from this and we'll look, in, uh, look at it in the up and coming weeks um, is the response uh, that Job has and kind of contemplation and concluding thoughts that he has. There is this strange little interlude of wisdom that we're going to pick up on as well. And then Job again speaks a little bit more. And then we have uh, another friend that surfaces, which is Elihu. And he speaks for quite a chunk of time. And then after him, we hear the Lord God uh, speak himself. And then we have the conclusion. And so as we go, we're going to pick up on some some key ideas and things that we're going to see. But as for this week, it's exciting to notice that we have made some great progress through the book of Job. And things are going to start changing uh, as we start looking at a little bit more uh, deeper uh, issues and things that are going to surface and discussions that are going to take place. And they're going to challenge us to think about things. Uh, But this is exciting because we are shifting into another section uh, and we'll be doing so over the next couple of weeks. Uh, But yeah, it ends uh, the the friends discourses, the three friends between Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. And so this week we turn to what Bildad has to say. And if you have looked at it before, uh, you know that it's an incredibly short response. But we're going to nonetheless spend some time looking at it and thinking through how Bildad has responded. Uh, what is he saying? Where does he get what he is saying? Uh, how, how does he formulate his thoughts a little bit? And how do they apply to Job? And what is the significance for us today? Uh, so as we consider at least uh, this section, I'm going to read it for us. Uh, and then maybe we can just pick up on some of the thoughts. Uh, Job 25 verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. 
Can his forces be numbered? On whom does his light not rise? How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm. And so this ends uh, Bildad's response. Short, punchy, lots in it. Uh, Harsh words, though, if we dig into it. But uh, it will be interesting for us to just think through what is Bildad saying here. So, let's turn to that uh, second verse there. It says, Dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. And maybe this sounds somewhat familiar in the type of language that he's using, but it's really a a summary of what you can find, at least uh, in one of the places, is in Job 5, verse 8. And this is a response that Eliphaz gives to Job. And listen to these words. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He provides rain for the earth and sends water on the countryside. And I'm just going to stop there, but immediately we have this picture that Eliphaz paints for us, that God, he, he provides, he, he, he rules from heaven, but he also brings provision. He looks after. Uh, and there is this picture of greatness, of God's immense uh, rule over creation. Uh, and so what Bildad is actually saying here, he's, he's, he's zooming in on it, and he says, Dominion and awe belong to God. The rule and the fear Uh, fear belongs to God. It is his. We need to recognize the rule of God, recognize that we need to fear the Lord. Uh, And then the second half, he says, he establishes order in the heights of heaven. And so the picture that Eliphaz gives us is at least just a picture of how God, uh, he he rules, how he establishes order, as he says, from the heights uh, of heaven. And so how God takes care of things from his heavenly, uh, heavenly seat, as he rules over creation. The the dominion and awe is an interesting uh, way of putting it. Because it's interesting that Bildad is bringing that up. Saying consider the rule of God. Uh, God rules over everything. And fear belongs to God. Uh, and so why is Bildad saying this? If you recall going back to the introduction. And how we are introduced to Job. We are told that Job is upright. He's blameless. He fears God. And he shuns evil. So it's interesting that that word fears God. Is actually ascribed to Job already. That Job is not just some just anybody who does as they see fit. But Job is a man who fears the Lord. And so here Bildad is actually affirming uh, something that we have already been told is true about Job, that Job recognizes that fear belongs to the Lord. Uh, so what, what Bildad is saying here is true. And not only is it true, but it's true for how Job is responding. Job recognizes where uh, all things come from. He says to his wife, at least in the beginning, do we receive only good from God and not the bad? And it's interesting that Job makes that connection as well in the beginning of Job, because he recognizes that all things come from God, which is an indication that he understands that all rule, all uh, events, all things in this world is as a result of God's rulership. Uh, And whether that seems good or bad to us, but that God is in control, actually, of all things. 
So up front, at least in the first two chapters of Job, we are introduced to this character who recognizes that God has rulership. He is over all things. And not only that, that he fears the Lord. He fears God. And here you got Bildad at the end of the friend's discourse is actually saying something that we know to be true about Job. Dominion and awe belong to God. And as we've seen and heard from Job all the way through, he recognizes that the best place to turn, the best place to actually wrestle and think this through, is by trying to come before God. Because he is the one with all the answers and he understands all things. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. And we have actually recognized that Job does recognize that there is an aspect of that. And we, if, if you're not convinced, I suggest go back to all the sections where Job has already spoken and see that he turns to God, that he understands who God is, that he fears God, that he has a, a, a depth of uh, understanding as to who God is. Maybe not an entire understanding, but he definitely understands um, that God rules over all things and that he is he needs to fear God. The next verse that we are going to look at is verse 3. It says, Can his forces be numbered? On whom does his light not rise? Well, the first part of it is he's saying, Can, can God be limited? Can we really count uh, God's forces? Uh, another translation might say armies. Can his armies be numbered? It is a suggestion and it's a pointing toward the power of God, his power as a, a God who rules over all things. So he is a powerful God. And can his forces be numbered? Well, no. These are two rhetorical questions that is asked here. On whom does his light not rise? And this is interesting because it actually takes us back to something that Job said in his lament in Job 3 verse 20. And I'm going to read that for us just briefly. It says, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Job is lamenting. He's experiencing incredible pain and anguish. And he considers his circumstance and he says, why does God give light uh, to this situation, to me, to the space that uh, I'm in? And so it's interesting that Job has already recognized that even as, as himself, who feels like he's in the pit or in the darkness, that there is this light. There is a recognition that there is light. And as you go through Job, you get these pictures of light coming through quite often. Uh, it is a strong image. Uh, and in particular here, I think what is significant is that Bildad is drawing our attention to the fact that there is darkness in Job's life. And that it sh it could be suggesting that Bildad is actually saying, well, what is in the darkness is going to be exposed. God's light shines on everybody. Uh, and he's busy building what he's saying. He's got an intention for saying that. He's not simply saying, oh, well, God, God looks and shines on everything, so don't worry. Uh, no, instead, Bildad, I think, has a stronger uh, a stronger thing that he's busy, case that he's building here. Um, and that we're going to see in the next half of the next verse. So if we turn to verse uh, verse 4, listen to the first section. How then can mortal a mortal be righteous before God? So on whom does uh, does his light not rise? So God's light rises on everyone. Uh, but in light of that, how then can a mortal be righteous before God? If God's light shines on everyone, uh, it will expose things, the darkness, in everyone. Uh, and so people will be exposed by God's light. 
And so what is interesting, though, is that this also is similar language to what we've heard before by Eliphaz. So if we flip back again, just to chapter 4, verse 17, we hear something very similar. He says, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? What Eliphaz says here is he really asks the question, can a mortal be more righteous uh, than God? Whereas Bildad has almost watered it down. He's, he's taken a step back and he's saying now, not uh, can, can a, ma- a mortal be more righteous? He's in fact saying, uh, how then can a mortal be righteous before God? He's not suggesting even the idea of being more righteous. He's simply suggesting the idea of being righteous or called righteous before God. Perhaps you'll have the argument, but there aren't levels to righteousness. Either you are righteous or you're not righteous. There can't be a almost righteous or a nearly righteous so that might be a fair argument but at least in what he is saying here is he is saying it outright he is saying that a human a mortal cannot be uh, more right uh, cannot be righteous before god because god exposes them and all human beings have sinned and fallen short uh, so how then can a mortal be righteous before God? So Bildad is just taking what Eliphaz has said, and he's just taking it a little bit further, taking it one step further. And then he says this in the second half of the verse, How can one be born of, uh, born of woman be pure? So if we go to chapter 15, let just flip back a little bit. Chapter 15, verse 14. There is something very interesting that is said there. Uh, if you recall this, what are mortals that they could be pure, or who's, uh, or those born of women that they could be righteous? So Eliphaz again at that point he is addressing the issue of this righteousness, this pureness, and so here Bildad is picking up on that idea again, and he's saying, how can one born born of women be pure? How can it be? So he said, a mortal is is never going to be righteous before God. And now he takes it one step f- further, or he just he adds to it uh, so much like Eliphaz has already done. And he says, how can one born of woman be pure? How can anybody born in this world, in this sinful state, in this sinful condition that we are in, uh, be considered pure? Now, this is where they are getting stuck. They are caught up and stuck on the idea that Job is proclaiming to be blameless, and he has. He recognizes himself as blameless before God. Uh, Not that he is pure or righteous for the reason that he hasn't ever sinned, but that he is blameless or upright because he has dealt with his sin. So there is that distinction that needs to be made. Um, But what is probably the tension here is that Bildad and the friends uh, believe that perhaps there is a level to which we cannot um, cannot fully repent. That could be one aspect of it. Uh, and if that is the case, then why do they? Why does Job, as one character, repent at all? Why does he offer sacrifices if the sacrificial system then doesn't work? Uh, but what is really the issue is actually the fact that. Um, As Bildad is looking at Job, he is saying that there is always sin in one's life. You have to deal with it. Uh, He's not talking to Job about how to deal with it, but he is saying that there must be sin. You are born of a woman, uh, which is just simply the 
the suggestion that you are born human, you are brought into this world, you are conceived into this world, and as you are, as that takes place, you are, by condition, will be acceptable to sin. And therefore you can't be pure, you can't be righteous before God. And so these are strong statements to be to be said. But yet Job has a different confidence. He has the, the confidence that uh, as long as he deals with his sin and as long as he's sincere, he can come before God as a blameless person uh, because he believes that what he has done is sincere. Uh, and maybe for us today, we still struggle to, to think that through. How is that? How can Job have that level of confidence? How is it possible that a person like Job uh, can have such confidence that he is blameless, that he hasn't sinned, or, or that he isn't guilty of any sin that he hasn't dealt with. Well, as the story, as the the discourses unfold, we have seen that Job has contemplated. Perhaps he has forgotten about something that he hasn't brought before God. But even if that is the case, he's pretty convinced that he has dealt with most, if not all, of his sin. Uh, because God hasn't revealed to him anything that he has not yet repented of and dealt with. And so what's fascinating is you've got this tension with, with Job considering the possibility, but yet still being able to call himself blameless. And as we saw last week, there is an aspect of that where we see that Job recognizes himself as blameless. And here we have uh, Bildad getting to a point where he says, no mortal can be righteous, no, no person can be born pure. Uh, it is not possible that you are, uh, you can be pure or righteous. And for us today, that's a sad thing. For us today, if that is true, uh, that nobody in this world can be pure or righteous, then the question is, what has Christ done for us? Because the reality is that there has to be, to some degree, uh, a way in which to solidify it. And God has made that possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that was live a pure, righteous life. Not to deal with our sins so that we can be pure. But he has actually made it possible to have a life that is absolutely cleansed by a pure and spotless life. And that is possible through Jesus Christ. So if it were true that nobody could be uh, pure or blameless, then even in light of what Christ has done for us, diminishes the effect of what he has done. And it would diminish the value of, of what the implications are of his life, how perfect it was, and how it impacts and affects our lives today. Because when we look at Christ, he lived that absolute perfect and pure life, uh, far greater than Job. Jesus wasn't one that sinned and had to repent uh, and and deal with his sin so that he could be considered blameless or pure. He was blameless and pure his whole life. But it's as we accept and acknowledge that, that we actually step into that reality, that truth, that we then also take on uh, that blameless and perfection of Jesus Christ. And so for us today, that's that's fantastic news. And it's crucial that we believe that because if it wasn't for the possibility of what Christ has done, then yeah, we aren't going to be pure or blameless at the end of this day. Uh, and so our unfolding story lies in the reality of Jesus Christ. Us today, we are going to fail and stumble. And as we confess, we may be uh, 
righteous for a period of time if we had to do it by ourselves. But we would eventually fail and stumble, as we have seen, uh, at least through Job and through the Old Testament time and time again. But what Christ has done is he's solidified it. He's made it a, a sure thing that even though you are going to fail, uh, or you have failed, or you will fail, or you are failing, that in Christ uh, something can be solidified on a far greater uh, re- far greater level than ever before. But as we go back to Bildad's response here, uh, notice what he says in verse 5. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. And I'm just going to stop there in verse 5. This takes us back again to at least uh, chapter 4 verse 18. And it's been used a couple of times before before this as well. If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error. Um, so there's this kind of concept um, often uh, angels or or the yeah the idea of celestial beings have this kind of star uh, language or the moon or the stars so there's this kind of play on words that Bildad is using but he is suggesting that even the moon and the stars in the sense of even those that are God's servants uh, they are not pure in his eyes uh, we when we consider that uh, we see that Bildad is really trying to build a case here, similar to what Eliphaz did early on, and as it's unfolded, they keep doing it. Uh, but the idea that no one, nothing can be pure. So how can Job claim to be upright or blameless before God? And then verse 6, listen to these words. How much less a mortal who is but a maggot, uh, a human being who is only a worm. And for me, this was fascinating because it actually takes us back to something that Job himself said in chapter 17, verse 14. If we flip back there, uh, he says, yeah, if I say to corruption, you are my father and to the worm, my mother or my sister. Um, And it's interesting because they're picking up on the aspect of it. And there's other points, at least, where this this idea of worm comes into play. But there, Job is really, he's considering once again, um, uh, where he's actually arguing with a friend. So if you see in verse 10 of chapter 17, but come on, all of you try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed. My plans are shattered. Yet the desires of my heart turn night into day. Uh, in the face of darkness, light is near. Uh, if only, uh, if the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father and to the worm, my mother or my sister. Uh, so he's relating himself at this point, uh, at least in Job 17, to, to being a, a sibling or a child of worms. Uh, and what's really interesting is it's a picture of the grave. Bildad's final, final picture that he says here uh, is actually quite a shocking one. He says, how much less uh, a mortal, how, how much less can a, a mortal be pure? Uh, who is but a maggot? Uh, we are a creature of the grave. We are a creature that is fit for the grave. That is what we are. We will be born into the world. We are not pure. And we are as good as maggots, fit for the grave. Uh, and as he says, a human being who is only a worm. And so he's picking up on that similar imagery. So if you think of what Job said in chapter 17, he is essentially saying that his state that he is in is that of someone that is 
at the grave, near to the grave, that he is, uh, he calls his his mother or father or brother or sister a worm in that sense, or actually that the worms are his brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and so on. And essentially what he is saying is that's his home. The grave is his home, the worms will consume his body, and he will be one of them. He will be a worm. And so it's interesting language that the final thing that Bildad has to say here is that uh, all human beings is actually the bigger picture that he's saying. All human beings are creatures fit for the grave, are creatures that actually uh, live off the decomposition of life. Uh, and that is what we are. We are creatures that aren't pure, that aren't righteous, uh, that are born to end up in the grave and are consuming and living off of what is uh, meant for the grave. And so it's this incredibly strong image that Bildad concludes with. Uh, the challenge with what I have, at least with Bildad's response here, is that so much of it is so true. If if we can just run through it and just consider what is true in what, what Bildad is saying here is, dominion and awe belong to God. Yes, that is true. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. It's true. Can his forces be numbered? No, they can't. On whom does his light not rise? God is over all things. He sees all things. He knows all things. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? We can't. We are going to fail. How can one born of woman be pure? We're going to fail. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? We are at this point fit for the grave. And what Bildad is saying here is true. But there is a little bit of irony in what he is saying. The irony is that it isn't just true for Job. The argument then is true for Bildad himself. It's true for Eliphaz. It's true for Zophar. It's true for all of them. And what do you make of that? And if we go back to what the argument has been, that what is happening to Job is a result of Job's wickedness, his sinfulness that he is not dealing with. I think the fear then sets in at this point because what Bildad is saying is if that is true, if God exposes all things, if no one is righteous and this is happening to Job because you say he has sinned, then I want to ask, what are you fearing, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar? Because if you recognize that nobody is righteous, no one is pure, then what will happen to you? Perhaps they fear that worse things will happen to them. Perhaps they fear that what is happening to Job will happen to them. And as we look at Bildad's response here, there is truth in what he is saying. But for us today, there is something absolutely remarkable. He asks this crucial question in the first half of verse 4. And listen to what he asks. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? And so Job had the first part of it incredibly accurate. And Job feared the Lord, shunned evil. His heart was set on God. And that's crucial 
It's important. But for us today, we know that there's one more thing. And not just one more thing, but one more person that is absolutely essential in this equation. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? Only by God himself. God is the one who makes someone righteous. For us today, we see that God has done that through Jesus Christ. We are made righteous through Jesus Christ. But I wonder whether what Job was convinced of, that his heart being in the right place, his determination to not curse God and to, to continually to seek God, whether that was Job in the right track, while Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were so set on reasoning it out, using their intellect to understand, using their tradition, what they've been taught in the past, to, to establish how God works. But instead, Job had this desire, this heart for God. Now we're going to have to pause on that because we'll see at the end what the real outcome is. But for us today, we see that there is a heart issue. That no, nobody is righteous. Not even one. Except for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Him that we are able to come to the Father. That it is in Him that though these things are true, that the dominion and all belong to God, that he establishes order, uh, and that his forces can't be numbered, and that his light will shine on everything, and that even though we are creatures fit for the grave, he has resolved this problem, and he has done so by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that a mortal like ourselves can be made righteous before God. So this passage is actually really beautiful for us today. Bildad is speaking strong words, yet again, not entirely applicable to Job. Because Job has, without Christ, before Christ, he has established himself, he has established his heart, his Commitment, his love for God above everything else. His very outlook on life is determined by who God is. While the friends use their intellect, use their knowledge, use their tradition to try and determine things. Job looks to God. If you recall all the previous weeks that we've looked at, the friends have, have tried to figure out what is wrong with Job. And Job the whole way has tried to figure out the answer with God. Job wants to wrestle and argue and state his case before God. The friends want to state their case before Job. And so this is fascinating. As we shift into the next section, we're going to have Job reply to see what Job's response is and, and how the, this, this progression of Job unfolds. But as we are at this point, 
as this final friend has spoken, it seems to bring a final conclusion to what is needing to be said by the friends. Zophar doesn't even speak. Part of me wonders whether Zophar, something hasn't perhaps clicked for Zophar. And as a result, he, he, he opts not to respond. Or perhaps the shortness of Bildad's response is an indication to the shortness of what they have left to say to him. That they have run out of things to say to Job. That they feel that they can't say anything else to him. That he just won't listen to them. But isn't this incredible? Because yet as we look at the story of Job, we know that Job was blameless and upright. That he feared God and he shunned evil. May we stand in that level of confidence and certainty uh, today because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who truly makes us mortals able to stand before God as righteous. May that be good news for you today. We'll see you next week. Cheers, bye.